0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, while the arts are known for being a progressive arena, there are still issues around race, gender, and inclusivity, because obviously. Today, we'll talk to the scion of a performing arts pioneer who paved the way for
1: Black theater artists. Black women really have an innate ability to hold space and vision not only for their own communities, but this idea. And then,
0: This was Gabrielle Garo on the flute, and she and Lakeisha Benjamin will be talking about women in jazz who are flouting convention. With the advent of electric lights in the late 19th century, Broadway, with its bright marquees made up of hundreds of bulbs, earns the nickname the Great White Way but the nickname could have also applied to Broadway's racial composition. American theater, like America itself, has historically had an ugly relationship to race, with minstrel shows trading on bigoted stereotypes and African-American actors, directors, writers, and audiences excluded from mainstream theater. With that history in mind, in 1968, Barbara Ann Tier founded the National Black Theatre Company in Harlem. It was the first revenue-generating black arts institution in the city, and this year it celebrates its 50th anniversary. To tell us about the role the National Black Theatre played in the fight for civil rights and its legacy today, we were recently joined by Tier's daughter and the company's CEO, Shadé Lithcott. Here's that conversation. Shade, thank you so much for joining us. So your mom founded the National Black Theater in the late 60s. Tell me a little bit about her. What was she doing before she
1: decided to start this theater company? Yeah, so uh, National Black Theater was founded 50 years ago uh, in 1968. My mom was, um, she started out her artistic career as a dancer. Modern dance. She was in Ailey's first company and really thought that the trajectory of her career would be dance. Um, and then she got a really horrible knee injury that um, precluded her from dancing anymore, and that's when she started to study acting. And she kind of studied with the best of the best, and what she found was that she was overtrained, overqualified for the roles that she would be able to go out for and so think about it in the 60s it was like all of the roles for african-american were african-americans were very trope driven so for her no matter how much stanislavski she studied or whatever she was going out for like housekeeper like prostitute and for her that was really a point of contention. And she was noticing that her peers, talented, incredible, young, uh, African-American, people of color, all have the same kind of issue. And so that in and of itself was a community. Um, And so she wanted to do something about it. And she started something called the Group Theater Workshop out of her partner's loft at the time, Robert Hooks. And she was teaching young, aspiring actors to act. And um, she was so well-trained that she thought that this was her path, this idea about like having a laboratory, training young people. But yet, they would go out into the industry and have these same kind of obstacles. So Group Theatre Workshop, very interestingly, turned into the Negro Ensemble Company, NEC, which is probably one of the most famous black theater companies in history. It's where Denzel and Sam Jackson and all of those folks came out of. For her, that was great to be able to tell, to have better representation in the diversity of narrative. But for her, she was like this very subversive woman. 1968, if you remember, like this country was on fire, right? It was the assassination of Dr. King. Almost every community rioted around that assassination. Dr. King's last speech, he talks about build black institutions, you know? And so she really believed that the only way to do both the work of activism through the vehicle of theater and empower our communities for the sole purpose of liberation was to start her own. And not just start her own, but start it in the communities in which we live, work, and serve. She wrote this amazing op-ed
0: that was published in the Times in 1968. I, I believe at the same time she founded the theater company called "We Can Be What We Were Born To Be." Yeah. Um, and I'll just read. I'll just read a little passage here. For those brothers and sisters who are still tied to Whitey and have not yet seen the need to shape black cultural art expression, let's look at one of Whitey's institutions, the American Theater, an establishment developed, owned, and operated by him for the sole purpose of making money. And she really rails against this idea that it's possible to work within the framework of a racist system Mm -hmm. and that you can keep on banging your head against that wall, but until... Um, people of color control their own means of of artistic production that we're not going to get anywhere. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, you mentioned Dr. King, you know, but a a lot of what she's saying actually sounds more like Malcolm X. Can you talk to me a little bit about your mom's thinking in terms of that, you know, Martin versus Malcolm dichotomy?
1: Um, I think that her whole kind of modality or pedagogy around national black theater was... F. Whitey, right? So the idea that you would rail against a system— really empowers the system, like, that's your role, right? Whether your role is to, like, step in line with everything or to kind of protest it, you're still working within that framework. So for example, her first company, she didn't believe in actors. All of her actors in the first company of National Black Theatre were called liberators. The purpose was to shift the consciousness of a people, a community, and ultimately the consciousness of America, which is why we're the National Black Theatre. I'm curious about what she saw Art's role in the
0: liberation of a people Mm -hmm. or in the dismantling of systems of oppression. Um, She wrote in that same op-ed that she almost wanted to see black theaters as like cultural sandboxes Mm -hmm. um, where strong political and social messages could be delivered to black audiences Mm -hmm. and both reflect truth, but also help imagine a, a different um, possibility in a different future. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how she thought about art as a power for
1: for social change? Yeah see for her, race and racism was a social construct in which people invested in. But race is devoid of culture and if you could infuse culture, from all the way back into the stories of our lives, how then do we show up in the world? And so, I think the thing about it was, It was about course correcting our narratives. It was about creating kind of a kaleidoscope of black lifestyle so that we can be humanized in a way. And so this idea of humanizing through radical, unapologetic black narratives really set the framework for human transformation, right? This idea that when we see each other as brother and sister truly, because these stories kind of hit at the core of all of our souls, we begin to have different conversations and so parody and equity look completely different when we share a human story as opposed to invest in tropes that keep us marginalized and fighting against something.
0: I'm curious about what your mom thought about playwrights like Lorraine Hansberry or Mm -hmm. August Wilson, black playwrights who were working within perhaps more of the white framework
1: and had plays produced on Broadway. Yeah, I think that opportunity was really important. I don't think anyone really shunned opportunity. It was a more of a yes and conversation. So your mother founded the theater in 68, but in 69,
0: uh, it moved into a building in Harlem. Can you tell me about the challenges that she faced in establishing a physical home for black theater?
1: Yeah. So we actually moved up to um, Harlem in 1968, and we were renting space in an old jewelry factory. Funny story, in 1968, the Studio Museum, which is still in Harlem, um, and National Black Theater were renting separate floors in the same building. So we were found at the same time in the same building. What amazing energy in that building. Yeah, exactly. And in 1983, uh, the building is a three-story building. The ground floor is retail. And then we occupied a floor of the, of the building. The um, corner <laughs> retail was a Kentucky Fried Chicken, which was right next to a dry cleaner. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken had this horrible grease fire. It kind of sparked with the chemicals of the dry cleaner and created like an explosion. It was a six alarm fire and it brought our building to the ground. And so it left us homeless. And in the rubble, my mother really had this vision to purchase the city block, to purchase the building. And everyone thought she was crazy because she was a woman. They thought she was crazy because it was a it was like a pile of ashes and rubble. And she made a declaration that she would be the first woman to buy this Property and to build this institution on the most famous address in the world and everyone thought she was crazy But she knew that ownership was powerful And she also knew that it was the most famous address in the world because you could go anywhere and you could say Fifth Avenue And everybody would think New York City and opulence and you say 125th Street and you would say think black culture, and Harlem. So she wanted to buy the intersection of the two and build a temple of liberation, artistic liberation, for her people. And she did. In 1986, we purchased the property and redeveloped it. um, For her, in order to do the kind of work, brave work, fearless work, unapologetic work, she knew that a part of that equation was owning our space so that we could empower people as entrepreneurial artists. I'm curious about your
0: uh, perspective on being a woman of color in a leadership role in an arts institution. And um, I know that you mentioned the the Studio, Studio Museum. Museum, yeah, yeah. with Thelma, Thelma Golden. There's like you know lots of strong Black female power in the area. Yeah. Talk to me about what you think Black women bring as leaders to arts organizations.
1: Oh well, that's a heavy question. No, but it's a really beautiful question. i, I looking at Harlem as a kind of template for where I think the country is going. And Thelma runs uh, Studio Museum. I'm running the National Black Theatre. Janelle Copro, uh, another woman of color, black woman, runs the Apollo. Virginia runs Dance Theatre of Harlem. The most thriving cultural um, organizations we're finding are run by women of color, I think when you look at the elections and you look at the way black women vote, or you look at the way, you know, culturally, how we hold space not only for our own— personal kind of endeavors, but for community in general, whether it's the Laundry Project with, like, Kimmy at the helm, or it's 651 Arts here in Brooklyn. I mean, Black women really have an innate ability to hold space and vision, not only for their own communities, but this idea, because that's what we've been doing our whole lives, especially on this continent, is holding space is creating the framework not only for our own families to thrive but really this country if you think about it and so It's an exciting time that we're getting the opportunities that we're getting, but no one's giving them to us either, right? Like we are in the trenches doing the work. And as a result, you know, we have these thriving organizations. So I think it's just a really exciting time and a a wonderful that my constituencies are um, women that I call not only colleagues, but sisters. It's really great.
0: And now you are continuing your mother's legacy. Yeah. Can you tell me about maybe what has shifted since mm-hmm. she originally conceived at the National
1: Black Theater and how you're ushering it into a new century? Sure. So lots have shifted and a lot has stayed the same. Um, my mom passed away in 2008 and I was asked by the board to come on for six months while they had hunted a new CEO. And I've been there for 10 years when I came on board, I really wanted to relook at the original values, mission, and vision of the National Black Theater and get back to as close as possible that experimental conversation with liberation. So what we do is we then look at the script, and we tease out a social justice or social impact theme that exists in the play, and we blow that up into a dramaturgical lobby exhibit that is always educational, always free and open to the public, and is the way that the production starts. So, for example, if we're producing something around— The Peculiar Patriot, which is on tour right now. Um, It's a one-woman show, comedy, actually, about mass incarceration from the perspective of women. Um, So we blew that up into a whole conversation around not mass incarceration per se, but around the importance of voting, because what's on the ballot are— All of these different points of legislation that affect funding for private prisons, for prisons in general. And so we turn the lobby into a conversation around voting um, from that kind of lens.
0: I love that that there's some sort of real world or social justice tie-in even to a play that hasn't explicitly been written with like a social justice framework in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're coming to Brooklyn? Um, We're coming. (laughs) So, you're up in Harlem normally, but you are collaborating with one of our cultural neighbors here in Brooklyn. What is um, Mothers of the Movements?
1: So we have partnered with Weeksville Heritage Center, and we're so excited about it. Um, Weeksville is um, 180 years old. It was one of the first free black communities ever in America, and they are doing such great preservation work, but also looking to partner. And so we have brought a new piece of work to them called Moms. It's not a new piece in that we've produced it last year with Carnegie Hall. It's a call and response piece, uh, which is very indigenous to our culture. Um, We've we've taken the papers and speeches of mothers of different movements. So it's my mom's op-ed piece in the New York Times, The Black Woman, She Does Exist, which has a response piece written by Chisa Hutchinson. Um, There is Fannie Lou Hamer's Hattiesburg Address, reinterpreted by an incredible playwright who was once our our, uh, playwright in residency, Infoniso Indofia, does a response piece to that. It'll be an exciting evening of discourse, dialogue, new work in response to these very, some like buried uh, manifests of where, of what these women were thinking about and writing about so long ago.
0: And where can people find out more information yeah.
1: about how to see the show? So you can either go to our website, which is nationalblacktheater.org, or you can go to Weeksville's website.
0: Great. Well, Shade, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks Appreciate for having time. me. Thanks. Must take the A train, but you're going to want to transfer to the C at Hoyt Skimmerhorn to catch the Central Brooklyn Jazz Consortium's panel on women in jazz. Female musicians like trombonist Mel Balliston, saxophonist Vi Red, and guitarist Emily Remler, they didn't get the recognition they deserved in their day. But here to talk about female jazz pioneers and the place of women in the genre and trumpet some of their own work are saxophonist, educator and band leader, Lakeisha Benjamin. Welcome to Woman2BK. Thank you. And flautist and saxophonist Gabrielle Garrow, who's participating on the panel later this month. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So how did you guys get started in jazz? Gabrielle, maybe we'll start with you. I guess I'll start with some of my background.
2: Uh, My dad is Dominican from Puerto Rico and my mom's from New Orleans. So a lot of that has definitely influenced the way I perceive things, the cultural backgrounds, and they're two different cultures, but they've really influenced me and I've definitely have seen it projected into my playing and growing up just listening to the music and definitely being inspired by those that have come before me, just listening, practicing, performing, and being so fortunate to do all that I've done so far. And what about you, Lakeisha? How
0: did you get started playing jazz music?
3: Um, I started jazz in high school. Uh, my family is African-American, but I was born and raised in Washington Heights, New York. So I grew up playing a lot of uh, merengue. So my first like upbringing like from Haleo books, maybe you could relate, mm-hmm. and like just really old school stuff. So when I got to high school, I was studying with a guy named Bob Stewart, who's a tuba player. And he was bringing all kinds of people like Steve Coleman, um, Nicholas Pate, and Sam Rivers band to, the, to our actual like school to show us. So it was through that transition of moving and having to like, you know, now learn this new art form that I started to discover all the masters and legends and really like see like the world's was like, was like infinite possibilities.
0: <laughs> so I don't know that much about jazz. I like what I hear, but I have no idea sort of about like the greats. Yeah. And as we mentioned, I'm sure that there are a lot of women pioneers who have gone sort of underrecognized. So I'm wondering if you guys Want to shout out like any woman who plays a saxophone or a flute who um, you consider to be great but maybe didn't receive the recognition in her own day?
3: Back in the t- early 20s, there was a big band called the International Sweethearts Rhythm. And they were all... Great name. Yeah. Mm. They were in all... They did integrate later on, but they started off as an all-African-American female band. So a big band. That's five saxes, five trombones, five trumpets. The woman you mentioned, uh, Vi Red, she was in that band. So they started. There's Melba Liston... I mean, there's so many people, Terry Lynn Carrington now, Tia Fuller, I'm Esperanza Spaulding. Sure. So the tradition has really started to grow and more people take it on.
2: Also, oh, like Mary Lou Williams, definitely, of course, Vi Red, who yeah. I've also been inspired by. Um, and like the Darlings of Rhythm. And then I think during that time, too, like more specifically with like Mary Lou Williams, Back in that era, there was, I guess it was oppression in a sense where it's like women were not given that panel that we have now in 2019 and so on. And when World War II came, that's when a lot of the male musicians were going off to war, of course. So that opened up some of the opportunities for women. But then when they came back, (laughs) whole other story. Right,
0: back in the kitchen. Exactly. And
2: then, God, man, if you were, (laughs) if you dared to still be a musician, As a woman, that was just looked down upon, and then they would be harassed. They would deal with so many other remarks. It was crazy.
3: There's a story about this. Actually, the the Sweethearts were at a a club. They had been playing that club five nights a week, selling it out. And the day the war ended, and maybe next week, the guys came back. And they came back to play the night, and the club owner had packed all their stuff and put it in the corner. And they are like, where's our stuff? And they were like, the guys are back. What am I supposed to do? And that's how they— Took a break. This
0: sounds like one of my favorite movies, a leak of their own, yeah. except with jazz instead of baseball. And I'm interested in seeing that movie. So please, somebody make it. Um, yeah. It also seems like there have been gender roles within jazz, maybe with the exception of this sort of time period that you're talking about, where like it's okay for a woman to be a vocalist or I don't know, maybe play like certain instruments, but like other instruments are viewed as too masculine or off limits. Was that your guys' experience when you were coming up? For me, when I was coming up, I, at that time, I kind of
2: grew up in the arts, like, singing. I was a baseball player for a while, which is... But then when I got into flute, I got into flute from my brother because I wanted to do what my older brother was doing, and he kind of led me to the flute. I'm very thankful for that, of course. But when I picked up the flute, I didn't feel like it was a thing where it's like, oh, if, um, you know, you had to be a vocalist. Although I do, of course, that existed at that time. But personally, I... Did not face that at nine years old. I started to realize that moving onward and going to some of the programs and being around my peers and then moving on to high school and then college, of course. But I've definitely learned since then that there are, like, stereotypes of what we should be doing. Even in college, I'm always mistaken as a vocalist or outside of school in general life. So.
0: Um, What about you, Lakeisha, as as a saxophonist? I, sh- I struggled with that earlier on looking for a
3: mentor that played my actual instrument like someone that because I was like into Mary Lou Williams I was into Terry Lynn so many people, but there wasn't a like for the horn It's a little more obscure for women. So, you know, if you get to the club sometimes they'll be like Oh, are you carrying that for your boyfriend. Are you here? You know to help the band <laughs> Are you carrying that for your boyfriend like, or like if you're coming to meet them <laughs> I don't a I, shitty boyfriend. <laughs> I'm not sure what they're thinking, right. but I've definitely had that so right. That's kind of one of the things that's motivated me and inspired me to, like, I guess get more into education and stuff, because I think that's important for people younger and coming up to see that there are actually people that are playing the horn, the flute, the trumpet, and they have successful careers, and they're doing well, and it's being received well, and that if this is the road you want to go down, it's totally possible, and you can make even bigger changes than what I'm making now.
0: There's an article in The Times um, from a couple years ago uh, where they talked about sort of sexism and gender bias in jazz. And um, they interviewed Camille Thurman, mm-hmm. who I believe is a saxophonist, and yes, went yes. to uh, LaGuardia High, where you guys both went. And she talked about how she felt like um, some of her male classmates were sabotaging um, their female peers. And she said a few of them made it really difficult for us females in the band. And that it led to some people dropping out and that she actually considered not, pursuing it as a career because of sort of um, the obstacles that were placed in our way. So I'm wondering if you guys had similar experiences or were there moments in your in your youth where you were like, should I really be doing this or is this gonna be too hard?
2: Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gabrielle, go ahead. Yes. Um, especially in high school, I've really dealt with that. You know, I started at nine. It wasn't as much in like elementary school because we were all just like starting yeah. we were like, we want to do this. Cool. But then it gets more serious as you progress into some of the more serious programs like uh, the map music advancement program at Julia Jazz Lincoln Center. And so as I was progressing in high school, I really dealt with that, especially being I was very fortunate to have like some roles to be like the musical director for like a production and things like that. So, of course, I was that one girl telling the guys what to do, and then you could imagine how that went.
0: You had a target on your back.
2: Yeah, but like overall, just during that gap of time, like within those four years in and outside of school, I've definitely felt like guys would be like, well, what are you doing? Or like, you're only here because you're a girl. Um, You know, or like they have to meet a quota. Basically, you're just filling that spot. Uh, I've dealt with, you know, guys stepping on my music and things like that, but I feel like it's something that I embrace now, you know? It's really something that I've grown into, and like you learn to love yourself regardless of the detours and things you've had to go through.
0: And how do you push back when somebody steps on your music or bullies you in that way? Like, what tools do you use?
2: To be graceful. Mm -hmm. You do it in a graceful way, but you gotta be stern and let them know what it is.
0: it just sucks that in so many of these like male-dominated industries that part of your brain has to be going to that instead of to music and studying. Um, what about you, Lakeisha?
3: I mean, I guess we're sort of all biased here because Camille, me, and her all well, we went to LaGuardia. Right. So and I went at the yeah. same time. So there was these factors going on, and I agree with Gabrielle. The older you get, the more it becomes... I guess your awareness goes up, too, so you start to see things you may not have seen when you were in like, elementary school. For me, the greatest time I really started to see it happening was once I got to college and I was going out to the jam sessions trying to make a mark starting to really get with solid work that's when I noticed like you know if there's 90 people at the jams 88 are men so now you're out there in the wee hours of the night with nothing but men and there's a certain mentality of why you probably are here and it's probably not for the same purpose so it was a lot of things to combat in that regard but I do think she's right about being graceful about it and there are ways to musically kind of stand stand your ground there, mm-hmm. and let people know musically this is what it is.
0: <laughs> I'm curious about how or if that impacts your musicality or the way that you play. Um, I don't know. Like, do people? I feel like often people are like, oh, you know, uh, this person's style is like very feminine or like masculine. Are those words that are used to describe? Um, I don't know, the way that people play in jazz?
3: People tell me to tell me I sound beautiful, uh-huh. I sound cute, it was a pretty solo, versus with the guys, they're like, oh, that was killing, that was amazing, oh, you're a monster, oh my god. You know, more like, and I'm at, at I may not still to this day understand if it's uh, accurate or it's personal. Right. Because <laughs> what right. is a cute solo? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right. are you actually meaning positive things, like, oh, this is the, the, the thing I relate to you, or do you actually mean cute little girl solo. So there are different, like I said, there's definitely different things and different ways you have to interact with the Mm guys.
2: And then also like the phrase like, play like a man. Or like, you know? Yeah, right, what does that mean? Someone told me once I play
3: like a big fat old man.
2: And like, what is what is that? <laughs> you're like, I'm good. Actually, I understood what
3: they meant, and I right. had a weighty sound. But right. I was like, that's the visual you get, I guess, with it.
0: Right, and it's the idea that you can't have a weighty sound or a sound with gravitas or play like a monster if you're not. A- well, we're fighting the the stigmas and stereotypes that have already been established.
3: So, and whenever you're breaking new ground, someone is looking for something familiar to hold on to. Right. So I try not to sometimes be too hard on them, especially if it's an audience member. You're just living your truth. And slowly, the more you see me the more you see us, you'll have a new perspective.
0: Right. Um, another question that I want to ask you guys is, I, I like interviewing women who are killing it in male-dominated fields. Um, but at the same time, I know that it can be really tiring and that having to be the women who come forward and talk about their experience as women in the industry it can be difficult and also that if it's not done right, it can be like tokenism, right? Where it's like, oh, I wish actually you would interview me about my amazing skills as a musician uh, on a mix panel rather than like having me come on and be the person to talk about gender all the time. Do you guys have fatigue about this? Are you tired about like to- talking about women in jazz? And if so, is there a better way to address this issue?
3: Um, I think for the most part in any... Even outside of music, women's rights has always been something that needs to be addressed. It's like we were talking about the 40s when men were going off to the war. Music was in the only field where women were starting to actually go to work or wear pants or do things that men do every day. So I think we'll get tired of talking about it when things change. I think sometimes you have to keep pressing and pressing your way through the issue. And sometimes I do wish... And interviews that are not based on a theme sometimes that, you know, if it's a male journalist, they may say the first thing to me, how does it feel being a woman in jazz? Versus like, how does it feel to even be a musician? Because I'm, I'm not really sure there's a difference in terms of w- with what you're asking. But like I said, I try to be understanding and compassionate because while it's the norm to me, because I've been a woman my whole life, it's very, very new all over the world. So I just try to understand, you know, soon this question won't need to be asked.
0: I really look forward to that day yeah. when we can stop being like, what's it like being a woman in X field? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> think, Normal would be the great answer.
2: I think it's also about like, how can you get tired of something that is your reality? You know, how can you get tired of talking about that? How can you get tired of creating awareness for it? Especially like other things going on in the news today. You know, that's people's realities. And I feel like, like Heisha like said, until change is made and you know we're being heard more, which we are being heard more in 2019 as well. I think that it's just something that's great to address on even bigger platforms and continuing to get that out there.
0: And Gabrielle, we'll stay with you and maybe you can tell me about this panel that you're gonna be on coming up.
2: Yeah, so with the panel, I was asked to be a part of it and I'm so happy to be a part of it, especially with like other heavy women that are just out in this industry and making a mark and there are women before me as well that I look up to So I'm proud to be a part of it and we will be discussing topics like this as well
0: That's great. And it's the Central Brooklyn Jazz Consortium's 20th anniversary They've got all sorts of events going on, but they have this specific panel um, that's on Saturday the 30th. I believe Yes, that right Saturday March March 30th Um, and we'll be talking about uh, women in jazz so (laughs) If people like this conversation, hopefully they'll come out for that. That's great. Um, Thank you guys so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Oman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bagosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.